All right, welcome and uh, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, I'm delighted to present our speaker today, uh, Dr. Yoval, Yoav, I'm sorry, Dr. Yoav Ronel, <laughs> who has recently uh, received his PhD from uh, the Department of Hebrew Literature at Ben Gurion University. Um, his dissertation dealt with matters of melancholy and nationality in the works of Mikhail Yosef Berdichevsky. Currently, Yoav is a lecturer at the Department of Visual and Material Culture at uh, Bezalel Academy of Art and Design, where he teaches courses dealing with poetic and theoretical representations of love and desire. Yoav is also a postdoctorate fellow at uh, Ben Gurion University, collaborating on a research project dealing with questions of access as a poetic and hermeneutic principle. And the title of his talk today is Love, Zionism, and Melancholy in the prose of Mikhail Yosef Berdichevsky. Thank you for coming. Uh, thank you, Yaakov, for uh, inviting me. I'm a little bit nervous and very excited, so I hope my English will uh, last throughout this talk, but we'll see. Uh, the writer and thinker Mikhail Yosef Berdichevsky was born in 1865 and passed away in 1921 is one of the most important figures of uh, Hebrew literature's revival period, which is between 1880 and 1920, approximately. Uh, this is early Zionism. His early stories depict the inner torments and passions of young Jewish, mostly men, at this time. This, this is the time of the birth or the revival of uh, Jewish nationality and modern, secular Jewish subjectivity at a fracture point, sort of, an imagined fracture point between, between religion and tradition and diasporic uh, Judaism and uh, an inspiration for modernity, secularism, and desire towards uh, national emancipation of some sort. This is the beginning of Zionism, an important phase in Zionist history. Berdichevsky famously claimed that the national revival will come not from like a collective movement, but from the birth of a new erotic, willful, and erotic, uh, a new erotic, willful, vital subject, individual, embodied in his uh, young and in love uh, protagonists that uh, occupy many of his stories, populate many of his stories. Moreover, moreover, he is typically described, and falsely described, but typically described as a fierce critic of diasporic Judaism, criticizing it for being too spiritual, to feminine, to passive, and decaying. His stories and several prominent articles fixed his image at the beginning of the 19th century as a young and radical uh, Nietzschean thinker and author that strongly rejects the, dias the traditional diasporic Jewish way of life and calls for a total shinui arachin, changing of the values of, Jewish, of Judaism. For him, the, nation, the nation's revival will come, will come from the birth of a new, erotic, and vital Hebrew man. Chafetz Chaim is the phrase he uses, the one who longs for life, or wishes for life, or wants life. Uh, individual and erotic love will secure uh, future Jewish nationality. This focus on the individual is mostly known as Berdichevsky's great renewal, I think. And his tormented protagonists in his stories embody the unsuccessful struggle to achieve this erotic renewal. Now, Berdichevsky wrote a lot of philosophical or politic text, political text and a lot of stories. And I think that uh, when people talk about him, they tend to confuse the two or 
they don't tend to uh, think them together. They think them together, but in an irresponsible way. Because in his stories, the Jewish struggle for uh, modernity and secularism and uh, emancipation is always unsuccessful. While in his uh, publicist writing, political writing, he always claims without any uh, regard for the historical condition that we must try and achieve uh, Jewish sovereignty. Okay. But the Sevki, oh, I'll repeat this, held a radical position concerning the national political debate of the time. He was a blatant anti-positivist and called for the cultivation of the individual and national will with no regard to the possibility of their fulfillment that may or may not appear later. The author repeatedly called for the need for Jewish sovereignty, calls that stood against his disbelief in the possibility of such endeavor, and even in the survival modern, of modern Jewish literature and culture. For him, and this is important, the will and desire for histori historical salvation are more important than their actual possibility. Thus, subjective and erotic desire represents also the desire for a nation. And on the flip side, only after Jewish nationality can establish itself could Jewish subjectivity and masculinity truly reconfigure itself onto a productive and active erotic form. This is like the old Zionist critique of the body, the masculine body of uh, traditional Jewish men. Like Zionism is a project of making the, the Jewish body productive, erotic, willful, in this sense, I think. Uh, erotic and national desire are the two sides of the same historical coin. Love depends upon land. For the Jewish man to govern himself, his desires and his wills, his body and his productivity, his rules and his life, he needs a realm, a land, as law and government are always connected to space as land. Space and land, sorry. Thus, one of the main forces in the production, <coughs> sorry. Everything stopped. One of the main forces in the production of this new Hebrew, new Hebrew subjectivity is the will and ingenuity of the individual writer. As Berdyshevsky clearly states, life and literature coincide. I quote, Man, by his nature, is the creator of myth, a poet. He poetically inscribes nature into an ideal poetic form and does the same to social facts. Aesthetics, the literary in its form, can be used as a driving force for the rekindling, rekindling of culture and society through its revision and acclimation in new works of art. The will of the author, this is Nietzsche speaking from Berlichevsky's mouth, is the negating and reviving power. And history, social facts, can be rewritten and represented in artistic work. Cultural political desire should be inscribed in literature and later on function as the basis for a renewed culture. The individual erotic author is the heart of this po poetic and historical process. What I will try to do today is to show that the rejection of diasporic ex existence is mediated in literature not through the image of an active physical figure of fulfilled masculinity, but through the image of the melancholic figure of an author or poet what he calls, Berdyshevsky called it, Meshorer, the poet. Meshorer in Hebrew is poet. For the Meshorer, it is not a 
activity that defines his potency, not the fulfillment of his will, but the ability to control and suspend his desire, and in this manner keep it alive. And in desire, I mean, of course, both the national desire and erotic desire. I will focus mostly on the figure of the narrator, the Meshorer, while offering short readings of a few stories throughout his work. It is important to understand the historical and material sphere in which Berdichevsky is working. Uh, the growing call for Jewish uh, emancipation at the time was not only caused because of uh, um, awakening of the Jewish body, but because of uh, growing economic problems. While I will not offer here a materialist discussion of early Zionism, I'm not an expert in that matter, and in Berdichevsky's work, which is, very, I think it's a very interesting thing to explore, it is important to state that, that the impoverished economic state of the everyone is always present in Berdichevsky and in his contemporaries' work, such as Brenner, Gnessing. Their work stories are littered with troubled, agonized young Jewish men and women, and we are always uh, deal with their psychological problems, but they are also extremely poor. They don't have a job, they don't know where to live. They, this is an economic material problem. The psychological inner torments of the modern Jew, which were celebrated in the modern Hebrew literature's critique, always derive from materialistic conditions. And I think the two recent works about this matter were just published, one by Oded Nir and one by, one by Kfir Cohen Lustig, who deals with a Marxist perspective on Zionism at large through Hebrew literature, which is very interesting. And I, will, I think that my work tries to relate to these issues, uh, hope, hopefully. Essentially, my claim is that Berdichevsky's poetic space, melancholic poetic space, aspires to mediate and mend historical and economic con contradictions that were seemingly impossible, impossible to appropriate in actual historical life between the need for sovereignty and economic flourishing and its historical impossibility. In the poetic realm, the, historic, the historical contradictions were solved and negated, albeit while leaving a problematic residue. I will deal with the relations between negated history and fiction, erotic life as a life-giving, erotic love as a life-giving force, force, chafetz chaim, and national sovereignty. I will hopefully show the desire, erotic and national, functions in a strange mechanism whose exigency is to remain unfulfilled. Berdichevsky's dialectics, I claim, from, derive from what I refer to as melancholic eros. As many have, men has, have mentioned, and this is the confusion between his political texts and the stories, Berdichevsky's work may claim to be vital, but it is mostly gloomy and catastrophic. Most of his stories begin with hope, but end in, dis in disaster and confusion. Think of uh, this, uh, the famous Machanaim, which tells of Michael, a young Jewish uh, a youth who falls in love with a girl and ends the story almost crazy, and even all of his stories. Most of them, them have the same arc. The rich man ends up poor. The desired and enchanting girl is always lost. The young man remains lonely and tormented. There is no success. I argue that this gloom that covers his work is a, precisely a part of this melancholic eros. I will start with one of his first stories. In the beginning of his career, most of his stories dealt with an uh, autobiographical figure, which was also in the first person. He had many names. He called him Menachem, Yonatan, whatever, whatever. Stories such as uh, Machanaim, 
when the hero is called Michael, which is almost like Micha, Menachem, without her, Orva Parach, all alone. This is the story I'll quote for in a, from in a second. And they all like depict autobiographical scenes from his life, imagined life. We need, of course, to look skeptically about the uh, relation between autobiography and history and literature, but uh, this is considered to be autobiographic, and I think that the use of the fir- first person here is uh, uh, interesting in that sense. Okay, let's, this is the first quote. And I again apologize for the translations, which are... Uh, especially because Adriana is here and she's an expert translator. <laughs> but, uh, okay. I want to open my... Uh, this is the young man confessing his love, sitting in his room, talking about his love, uh, the, one, the girl that he loves. Okay. I want to open my soul to her. I want to reveal the treasures of the soul and all that is sublime in the world. I am the master of everything through my relation to everything. Even the mountains and the hills, the sky and the heights of the sky, history and the secrets of history, all of them I hold in my hand. But she will only see before her a schoolboy on his path. And it makes me sad, sad and angry. She's sitting in her room and I am sitting in my room. I love her with the richness of my soul. This is a paradigmatic Berdichevskian scene. The solitary young man sits in his room and imagines an unattainable girl. This scene repeats itself in numerous other stories, autobiographic and not. We'll get to that. This may seem like a typical scene describing a young man's incapacity to engage with women. Uh, the young, shy, and confused, uh, detached, talush uh, Jewish youth is impotent, both figuratively and literally. And, and this is the critique of a Zionist critique of this period, that all of the, the masculine figures are impotent, melancholic and impotent. I claim that impotency is in fact potency. It's a suspension of desire, and I will show how. However, I argue that what actually happens here is a specific mechanism of the will, and that impotency here is a poetic device. It is fulfillment that is the danger that the protagonists have to refrain from. Desire is suspended as long as the yearning man longs for love, sex, or nation. And as he lacks the means, the historical conditions, and the erotic techniques and language to realize his desire, he must suspend it in an imaginary state. But let's take a closer look at this imaginary state, which is indeed a state. He holds the entire world in his hand. This is a very uh, important topology. He is safely located in a small space from which he looks outside. The spatial arrangement makes sure one particular thing never happens. The girl and the boy never meet. In this case, she doesn't even know him. The real relationship, possible relationship, is negated in favor of an imagined one that relies on the image of the girl as an inspiration, inspirational power, and creates a melancholic and imagined sovereignty. He is the master of everything through his melancholic relation to everything. The use of the concept of melancholy here mostly follows the thought of Giorgio Agamben, the Italian thinker and philosopher. For him, unlike the Freudian interpretation, melancholy is not just a psychological feeling, but an ontological mood that comes before any event of loss. 
Unlike Freud's understanding of the concept, melancholy does not lead to impoverishment, but it is a mechanism for the preservation of desire. I quote from Agamben, an imaginative capacity to make the unobtainable object appear as if lost, to turn what was never ours into a lost image, and in this way keep it alive. I quote again, Agamben's English is much better than mine, covering its object with the funeral trappings of mourning, melancholy, melancholy confers upon it the phantasmagorical reality of what is lost. It is a way to hold desire, courting the phantasm in an immobile dialectics, courting the image, not the person. Desire is held in a poetic space or crypt, suspending in a burning, uh, frantic, sorry, difficult word, exacerbation. And I quote again, melancholy succeeds in appropriating its object only to the extent it affirms its loss. Think about the young youth there. The unattainable becomes a lost image created using poetic potency. Melancholy, life alongside a lost object, does not lead to impoverishment, but on the contrary, to its negation through poetic creation. This applies to the political situation itself. In Berdichevsky, sadness and loss function as the source of poetic and political omnipotence. In an essay from 1898, he writes, and this is the second quote, this is like an essayistic thing. An Israeli sadness that I haven't felt in days came, came and knocked on, my window, on the window of my secluded room. There, by my small desk, in my small room, inside my small world, I sit and listen to the mourning of the Israeli people and hear its generations-long sadness. And everyone, everyone, young and small, young and old, big and small, all of them, con convoys upon convoys, all of them come, convoys upon convoys, and park outside my window. And a deep darkness and worldly sadness looms upon everything. And in my inner self, think about this interiority that he's creating. Small town, small room, small desk, small world, inner self. I wish to unite, to create new people and nation, and my soul is torn a historical tear. And all I have left is this inner sadness and these inner grievings. I dwell alone in the corner of my small room, in the corner of this foreign and not foreign town. Give me a lyre and a fiddle, and I will sing a song of grief, a song for the generations, for generations upon generations. And you will hear grief in my song. Silent and sad mourning against the storm. Give me a small cavity, and there, deep in the ground, I will mournfully contemplate our gloom. The author here is the lone witness of the ghost of the past. Ontology, what is, is also melancholy. He incorporates, swallows into his interiority, the historical loss while using sadness as poetics. History is appropriated and preserved precisely as lost, generations upon generations, in an undead form. The days have passed and still remain. This is another quote from Mordechevsky. This, the space of melancholy of that of the crypt, which is the, also the Jewish bookcase, and the coffin, and his room, and the room, the cheder where he studied at, and it grows, in it, in it grows the living dead work. This is another quote. 
I feel the song of the buried skeletons and even their maggots sing. Melancholy is not the impoverishment or stoppage of work, but its fountain, the origin of the small world inside the small room. The lyre and the fiddle are the melancholic instruments of creation, both of aesthetic or cultural and historical or political. The melancholic imagined and imagined unfulfilled will to unite the people that is the centerpiece of the author's poetic, pol poetic politics. And as such, he refuses the idea of fulfillment, preserving desire in a burning, active and inactive, inoperative. This is how Agam Agamben uses this situation, this uh, weird sense of actuality that is not actual, inoperativity. Desire is preserved in a burning, inoperative state. This is important because most Berdichevsky critics saw his work as the one that scolded the hopeless, melancholic man and adorned to, to his strong, passion, passionate and active protagonist. The simplistic Nietzschean reader of his work confronted two contrasting figures. On the one hand, we have the melancholic youth who never uh, gets the girl, so to speak. And on the other, man, on the other hand, his uh, work is littered with strong, passionate, uh, firm, fierce, masculine men who always get what they want. They just take it. And most uh, critics saw these figures as the culmination of uh, the Jewish, the Jewish uh, future, that, the Hebrew future, or more accurate to say, that Berdichevsky imagined. I claim that it, it is the other way around. It is exactly the melancholic figures that are able to suspend their desire, control their will. Uh, like uh, examples from the, for the fierce or what he calls red characters can be found in uh, Besete Ram, uh, A Place of Thunder, which is one of his most famous uh, works, late works, and others like uh, You Shall Build a House, where there are like these mythical beings that always get what they want. Uh, okay, sorry, where am I? I, I claim that it is only these passive and, con the passive and contemplative figures, like the, he the hero of All Alone who holds the, all the world in his hand, that express Berdichevsky's melancholic and sovereign will, unlike the red characters that always fulfill their desires and meet a tragic death. For example, Red Shlomo, the, the almighty lord from In a Place of Thunder, Besetteram, has had sex in, with his wife, and finished his life, uh, died at an early age, embarrassed and ashamed. Or Michael from Machanaim, another longing youth, but the second he fulfills his desires and sleeps with his, uh, the mother of his girlfriend, it's always very confused there, the, yeah, the relations between the family, he, uh, he becomes almost crazy. His will disappears, and when the will disappears, we meet uh, madness or death. This is like the Berdichevskian arc. In Berdichevsky, fulfillment means mad, death or madness. This is a historical thing. The Jewish man has no way to fulfill his desire for sovereignty. Sovereignty. Not only because he lacks the emotional vocabulary, but also because the erotic national awakening doesn't have the material conditions to flourish in. Any dream of active Jewish eroticism and politics in Berdichevsky's mind at least, will undoubtedly end in tragedy. So he chooses melancholy for the suspension of time and the opening of, eroti of poetic eroticism and sovereignty. 
The fi- this figure of the melancholic youth hid- hidden in his chamber grows with the author's work. He turns from autobiographic writing toward more nuanced representations of Jewish life. And uh, the, these later stories, like famous red heifer or the late novels that I spoke about just now, represent the mythical forces latently burning in the waning diasporic society. However, I argue that the mythical figure that comes to life in his work is precisely that of the author, the meshorel, the narrator, the narrator as creator of worlds, willing them to, li- to live through the melancholic suspension of desire. So while the earlier stories were somewhat autobiographical, in the later stories, such as Ahavat Neurim, from which I will read now, The Love of My Youth, the Meshorer becomes an arth-poetic figure, a timeless mediator that opens up and maintains, or animates and keeps alive, the act of creation. He is the real protagonist of Berlichevsky's work. These are the opening lines of Ahavat Neurim from 1909. Here the narrator is no longer uh, speaking the first person simply, but he describes himself as an author. And this is the third quote, I think. Historical actions demand from us, the authors, to describe histories weaved in life, to combine visions with the busy noises of action, what is seen and what is heard. And what are those, if not the summary of the suffering soul and its latent sadness? Without the soul and its agonies, actions and visions are useless, and we will not know why we should know. Let me tell you about the love of my youth. My loved one did not know that I had loved her. And I am old now. I have seen many lives and their tears, and the girl is gone. She left before I did and she rests among pure spirits, amongst pure spirits. Life cannot be spoken by the living. This is a very strange sentence. In Hebrew, it's en hachai medaber min hachai. Very strange. I didn't know how to translate it. And when, and when I remind of the girl that resided in this house and soul that served as my light, I already stand in the middle of the story. More than a generation has passed. Life is long and constant. And she still stands before me, as if alive by her beauty, with her two braids and the charm of her grace. Here we have the melancholic tendencies and spatial arrangement. The author, in his house, is looking back and bringing back to life his lost love. The story itself, that begins after this threshold, may seem again like the typical depiction of the deficiencies of contemporary young Jews. The author protagonist, Yonatan, falls in love with Nechama, and they become friends. But he is unable to engage with her, even in the slightest way. There is a scene in the story when the girl knocks on his room, and he hears her knocking, and this is like, a, like the Song of Songs, but he's just unable to move. He just freezes, immediately freezes. He's so passive that his sister has to open the door. And with, in the Song of Song, the, the, the lover, Solomon, knocks on the door and the Shulamit is so excited, she wakes up and she comes to the door and they have like sort of weird mediator intercourse on the handles of the bolt. They, he slits his hands, never mind, very erotic. Here nothing happens, he just freezes. No movement at all. And if in the Song of Songs, the Shulamit follows him and wanders in the city and goes crazy from love, she's lovesick, 
Here, he just stands there. She walks in. I they converse a little bit. His sister opens the door. And he's, he's just frozen. But after she leaves, he said, that was a revelation. Like, this was the opening of the realms of God for me. Without doing anything. Absolutely immobile. And, of course, Berdichevsky evokes the figure of the Shulamit in the Song of Songs. This is not like, this is very much there. This passivity, of course, is amplified when another uh, character enters this apparatus of desire. Uh, this, the active, handsome, of course, and playful, which is important, Eliakim. This is like a red character, an active character. Yonatan and Eliakim soon become good friends, and their friendship depends upon, upon their joint love towards Nechama. They both love the girl. But Eliakim, unlike his friend, can interact with her in more ways than one. Let's read the fourth quote, I hope. He was taller than me, of course he was. His hair yellow while mine was black. Our relationship with Nechama was utterly different. Uh, I was afraid to even touch the tip of her dress. This is like a sense of holiness. You cannot touch what is holy, of course. While he made fun of her, and when she wouldn't agree to give him something, an object, he would try to take it from her and tussle with her playfully. Which is, yeah, okay. Firstly, there is physical play. This is important because this is a scene that describes, I think, the changing of the values and the way people used to court people, like of erotic and romantic uh, processes. Eva Ilus famously wrote about this thing and another book by Nomi Zeidman just came out like a couple of years ago. But this is like very untraditional to, to play with the girl, to touch her, to wrestle with her. This is like, okay. <laughs> uh, firstly, there is physical play, one that involves word and touch. And while this is just a game, it is an active and light-hearted, not melancholic activity that accentuates Jonathan's serious passivity. Eliakim also tries to actively take and possess the thing he desires, both the girl and the thing that she holds in her hand. In what follows, Eliakim and Nechama's relationship intensif intensifies. And the two even exchanged love letters. And while for Eliakim, this is an entertaining poetic game, Jonathan, of course, experiences it profoundly. Just a second. We sat and read her pleasant, it's another quote you have here. We sat and read her pleasant and esteemed words. They felt as sweet as honey. Word by word, we read the letter, Eliakim and Jonathan together. And afterward, I took it from his hand and looked at the lovely letters and read, read again, verse, verse after verse. My friend stood up and moved around, while I just sat there with Nechama's written feelings in the palm of my hand. Think about the world in the palm of his hand, now it's her feelings. My heart overflowed with feeling. Love, for Yonatan, becomes real and tangible, something you can hold, precisely when he functions as the mediator. This is not his love, and that is why he can fully enjoy it. Jonathan's passivity is highlighted against Eliakim's rapid movement, but at the same time his heart, the source of his will and desire, the locus of the creativity, overflows. This love is enjoyed and acquires potency only passively. The final triumph, so to speak, of the melancholic figure happens, obviously, at the end of the story. Eliakim, following the social imperative to chase money and success, 
or succumbing to the social imperative to chase money and success, as some of us, most of us do, abandons Nechama for a richer girl. His love is unmasked as merely a game. His poetic letters, letters and physical taunting as an en- endless gestures. But even after his rival is removed, Yonatan cannot approach Nechama. She marries another and dies at a young age. We know that from the beginning of the story. But in the melancholic realm, death is not the end, but the beginning of creative potency, the heart of the story. This is the next quote. And myself, this is the ending of the story. I always believe that Nechama is far from me, and I never prayed that it is possible that she, my heart's desire, and my only part in life, will really be mine and say, I will follow you. And here at the end of the story, Berdichevsky repeats the statements he made about the middle of the story. I am the one who lives in the depths of the earth, and I will remember Nechama and her beauty. More than a generation has passed, I am an old man, and she still stands before me, as if alive by her beauty. This is romantic imagery. With her two braids and the charm of her grace. The image of the girl lives in the memory of the author, who inscribes it to a story, as the ending is in fact the opening. Jonathan's desire for the undead image of Nechama leads to the literary act, and in the literary act, this desire is rekindled in a circle of desire, where image provoke desire, provoke words, and the, these words write the image in an endless circle of joy. This is Agamben's uh, concept of melancholy and of romantic love at large. Uh, but this circle, uh, in the literary act, desire is rekindled in a circle of desire, image, and language that remains potent precisely and only because Nechama is forever lost. It is the will of the passive melancholic man that preserves and endures, proving himself as more powerful than that of his whimsical friend. The melancholic will belongs to the Meshorer, the authors, who becomes not only the vehicle of desire, but also the sovereign of the text. Against Eliakim, who follows the social order, Jonathan is truly a free individual. And it, it says so, that he wanders around like a very uh, free of society's constraints. In his lonely tomb, love and life are reanimated in an undead state, and desire is both deferred and maintained. Psychological loss turns into our poetic topology, into poetic space. It is the Meshorer's goal to preserve the national and erotic desire using his willpower. It is important to note, as Davidov Lipsker has done, that Berdichevsky wasn't melancholic in his life. Like many of us read his stories and his texts, and he always whines about not getting paid enough, and we imagine this very tormented man. But after he moved to Germany at uh, 1911, I think, he lived with his wife and his son, surrounded by friends. He was very creative. He had sort of economic stability, and he was adorned by other people, uh, young Hebrew readers and German, uh, whatever, milieu. milieu, German milieu. He was not lonely. Melancholy is not his psycholo- psychological state, but a poetic and historical state. This is very important because this we can mix the two easily because of the autobiographic nature. And while past traumas and national fears always haunted him, his story's melancholy is not a reaction to psychological loss or loneliness, but to the historical political condition. 
I will uh, end shortly. Berdyshevsky's final celebrated short novels as, are perceived as the culmination of his varied work. These work are considered the epitome of the, his project of reviving Hebrew culture through a revision of past materials, and they depict stories filled with eroticism, myth-like actions, tragic consequences, etc., etc. But I wished, again, to focus on the melancholic figure of the poet-creator that inhabits a particular space in these texts. He appears in the thresholds, in the beginning, in the adding, ending, or uh, intervenes in the middle with interpretations and remarks, but he's not a part of the plot. These thresholds, I claim, uh, function as a liminal cryptical space, the space of literature, where literature appears, the act of literature, upon which the Meshorer rules. All three novels, and you have, you have all three openings, Bait Tivnei, You Shall Build a House, Beset Ram in a Place of Thunder, and Garei Rechov, which I didn't know how to translate, so I translated, I think, The Residence of a Street, which <laughs> sounds very bland, but whatever. They all have these ars poetic openings. These are the representations of the melancholic space of literature, preserved by the will of the author. The narrator is not the autobiographical protagonist anymore, but the source and sovereign of the work. He appears only in the poetic space. Let's read the opening of Garei Rechov. Again, more than a generation has passed. Many wars have plagued the country. And I have witnessed the wrath of God and the grace of God. Though there are obstacles on our stepping ground, the fields of memory are wide open, and we will stroll there when the sun is up. Even, we, even when we are on the bed, which we will never depart, flakes of youth will somehow somewhat light the darkness. I don't believe in the resurrection, but I do believe that a thing that has passed and died can be revived in the mind of a person. The poet, the poet is almighty. Historical or material obstacles, the obstacles on our stepping ground, are negated in favor of the wide open and sunny realm of memory. It is also the realm of creativity, the realm of creativity and the preservation of the past. And the topology of this realm is, in fact, the melancholic bed or the small chamber of the narrator, which these things are reconfigured one into the other. Flakes of youth and dead images, future and past, coincide in an immobile dialectics and live in the mind of the almighty Meshorer. The Meshorer negates real, unattainable history to preserve it as an image. Life persists, but always as negated life, as an image of the lost object, preserved, but always with the relation to the as-not condition that is inherent to this process. The might of the poet's heart is in fact melancholic eros. The aesthetic literature and the historical coincide, suspending historical process. This economy of desire is mostly a way in which literature tries to resolve historical and material contradictions, suspending them in a poetic and imagined realm. Moreover, this is not only how Hebrew sovereignty is imagined and national and erotic desire are maintained. This is also a process in which gender is codified. The image of the author is of a secluded, yet omnipotent man sitting in his room while fantasizing about a lost girl in the past 
or the nation to come in the future. Here, eroticism becomes autoeroticism, as masculinity, the new Hebrew man, depends solely upon his own will, the will of the author. And this image of the solitary man imagining girls, ima imagine, imagining girls is, I think, the a key way to understand the economy and the figure of masculinity of the period at large. If one was to read Hamutal uh, Tzamir's latest book on Bialik and desire in Bialik, he would find the same economy of desire exists in, in Bialik's work. The suspension of desire, Bialik is the contemporary of Berdichevsky, much more famous, much more important, but he, he dealt with the same historical tensions and contradictions. This, in Bialik as well, you should suspend your desire, you should not spend it, you should not spend your tears, you should not spend your uh, creativity, your spark. They all should be withheld within the offer. The suspension of desire in a burning melancholic state may very well be the key to a renewed understanding of the relations, relations between literature and politics at the revival period. And, moreover, to the genealogy of the production of modern Jewish and Hebrew masculinity, of Zionist masculinity. And this is my last remark. This last remark is important because literary critics have lately tried to show that diasporic and melancholic tendencies of the, in the work of self-exclaimed Zionist authors, such as Berdichevsky, Brenner, Bialik, whatever, they claim they are, weren't really Zionist. Example, examples can be found even in Mickey Glusman's very good book The Zionist Body, when, which shows that melancholy is a problem, it's a disease, when he reads Brenner, and more recently in works by Yochai Oppenheimer or Eyal Bassan. But this is an attempt to find in early Zionism post-Zionistic uh, aspects, which is very strange because they did consider themselves as Zionists. I argue the opposite, that the melancholy of these figures is a poetic way to resolve the tension between an unwavering demand for Zionist sovereignty and historical conditions that deemed it improbable. It is not a psychological phenomenon, but the period's historical apparatus of desire. In his small room, an imagined kingdom, the melancholic man-author exemplified Zionist desire for national sovereignty, keeping it alive against history, with the erotic power of his imagination and the strength of his will. Thank you.